morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us this morning as we continue to get a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer to Christmas. Now, we've been calling this sermon series Angels of Advent. And as we saw last week, angels appear all over the Bible doing all kinds of things. But one portion of scripture where angels appear most frequently is in the classic Christmas story in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. As we said last week, angels are spiritual beings. They're created by God to serve him and serve his people. And one of the most common ways that angels do that in scripture is by relaying messages. And time and time and time and time again in the Christmas story, we see angels doing just that. They have a message from God to share. And it is a message of universal, cosmic, timeless, and eternal significance for every single person who has ever lived. Now, it all started when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were a godly couple, but they didn't have a child. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both getting older, but that didn't stop their prayers. And the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that Elizabeth would conceive. And this baby named John would be great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. But really the most important thing about John is the one who would come after him. John's primary job is to prepare the way, to make paths straight for the one coming next. So this morning, we shift our attention away from Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John and focus on another woman and another baby. Mary is also childless, though for very different reasons. Mary also receives a visit from an angel, though the message she receives is even more astounding than the one Zechariah heard. And Mary will also unexpectedly have a baby, though her conception will be even more remarkable. And as more characters are introduced in the story, and as we once again hear from Gabriel, the incredible work that God is doing through these two unlikely women and their two uncommon babies becomes even more clear. This message of what God is doing is so grand and so glorious that angels are sent to announce it. We saw it last week. And we see it this morning as well. So open up to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to come together and worship you. Thank you for this time of year uh, when Christ is maybe a little more on our minds than usual. Uh, We see him in places that we don't normally see him. Uh, We see nativity scenes and we see Christmas cards with mangers and a stable and animals and Mary and Joseph riding on the back of a donkey. We see Christ in lots of different places at this time of year that we may not normally see him. But I pray that you'd be here this morning as we see him in your word. Uh, I pray that you would watch over us as we read your word And I ask that you be faithful uh, to your promise that your word would not come back void, that when 
We open your word. It is never a bad use of our time. Uh, When we open your word, there is never a time when we don't get anything out of it. Uh, When we open your word, there is never a time that we are not fed. Uh, And so, Father, I ask that you would feed us this morning with your word. And, of course, I ask that our worship today would be glorifying to you. It would be beneficial to us in our maturity and our faith. And, Father, I pray that you would be honored through what we do here this morning at this church at this moment. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're often fascinated by origin stories. For example, we know the Joker is evil in the Batman movies, but we want to know why. So Hollywood comes up with an origin story to tell us where the Joker came from and how and why he became a villain. On The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, not that any of us watch these shows, one of the most crucial points in the entire show is the hometown date. Because as we all know, before you give someone a rose, you better do a little research into where they came from. Many of us want to know the origin story of our food before we eat it. Were the chickens raised cage-free? Were the cows grass-fed? Are these real vegetables, or are they genetically modified organisms? Now, while you might not agree with all these illustrations, the point is this. We're interested in origin stories because knowing where someone came from in the past, the place, the time, the circumstances, and all the various influences that shaped them, knowing these things can tell us a lot about who they are today and why. Well, the Bible is also interested in origin stories. Important figures in Scripture are often closely identified with their parents, or the place they were raised. People in the Bible are often introduced with the phrase, he was the son of blank, or she was the daughter of blank, or they lived in blank. Where someone comes from matters. But the truth is, some scriptural origin stories are more interesting and more important than others. And that's why some figures in the Bible have extensively detailed birth stories. For example, in the book of Genesis, Isaac's birth gets a ton of buildup before he's born, and the story is repeatedly revisited after he's born. Why is that? Well, it's because Isaac is not just another baby. He's the first major step in God visibly fulfilling his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation with countless offspring. In the fall, we read an exodus about Moses' birth and his unlikely survival from the hands of the ruthless Pharaoh. Why does Moses' birth get so much attention? Well, because he too is not just another baby. He's the deliverer God would raise up to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. In the book of Judges, Samson's birth gets a lot of focus as well. His mother was also barren, but an angel appeared to her and promised that she would conceive a child. Samson would go on to defeat Israel's greatest enemies in the Old Testament, the Philistines, even though Samson often resisted God's call. And one final example is the birth of Samuel. Samuel's mother, Hannah, was also barren, but God heard Hannah's desperate prayer and gave her a child. 
Samuel would go on to become a prophet. He would anoint the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. And he would also anoint the better king of Israel, a guy by the name of David, who we'll talk about in a moment. So with all these examples, it's safe to say that when the Bible gives you a detailed origin story, a detailed birth story, you should probably pay attention. Because inevitably, that baby will go on to do something important. Or maybe more accurately, God will go on to do something important through that baby. But as important as all those babies were that we just listed, and as significant as they all were to God's unfolding plan of redemption throughout the Bible, there is one birth story that trumps all of them. And that story, of course, belongs to Jesus. It starts in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, a few things to consider about what we just read. When you consider how important origin stories are in the Bible, that makes it all the more interesting that we have little to no origin story for Mary. And what seems almost like a passing comment from Gabriel, we do learn that Mary is related to Elizabeth, which means that she's probably a descendant of Aaron as well. But other than that, we aren't given much information about Mary's background at all. And on top of that, the little that we do know about Mary's background isn't all that remarkable. Her hometown of Nazareth is unimpressive. She doesn't get nearly the same introduction that Elizabeth got. Mary is presented as your run-of-the-mill, betrothed teenage girl, presumably not much different from most of her peers. The truth is that Mary is extremely normal. That is, until God announces his favor upon her and announces the work that he will do through her. And maybe that's the point. While Mary will play a crucial role in God's unfolding plan of redemption, the story really isn't about her. But then we should also examine the content of Gabriel's announcement more closely. Like he did with Zechariah, Gabriel tells Mary what this baby's name will be. Jesus, which means God saves. Gabriel explicitly calls him son of the most high and implicitly calls him the son of David, the greatest Israelite king in the Old Testament. 
Gabriel then says that Jesus will ascend David's throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. So in short, this baby is the Messiah. He's the one generations of Israelites have been waiting for. The one they expected to rise up, defeat their enemies, restore the glory of Jerusalem, and put God's chosen people back on top of the world stage where they belong. Just like they were when David was king. Now that's a lot for anyone to take in. Much less a very normal, betrothed teenage girl from a podunk town like Nazareth. And you know, while much of this might sound pretty good, after all, being the mother of the Messiah could certainly have its perks. Mary does have one big question, and it's a reasonable one at that. Mary asks Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? That might be Mary's way of asking, Okay, Gabriel, what am I supposed to do to make this happen? She's betrothed, so she and Joseph probably already have a date and a venue and a DJ picked out for the wedding. But Mary's wondering, should they shorten their betrothal? Should they get married a little bit earlier than they planned and maybe immediately start trying to have a baby? Is there anything they need to do to speed up the Messiah's arrival? Well, no. Gabriel makes it clear that that's not how this will work. Mary doesn't need to do anything, change anything, or force anything. This baby will not come from union with her husband, the way babies typically do. Instead, he will come by God's power. Picking up in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So because of this miraculous conception, a baby born of a woman's body and God's power, this baby will be different. None of the other miraculous conceptions None of the other detailed birth stories we mentioned earlier can compare to this. Not Isaac, not Moses, not Samson, not Samuel, not even John the Baptist can compare to this. Again, all of those babies were noteworthy in their own unique ways. They all played important roles in God's overarching plan. But none of their origin stories can even hold a candle to the wonder of the virgin birth. This baby will be called holy. Even though he is born of a woman, he will be untouched by the stain of sin that every other man, woman, and child is cursed with. While his mother is of the earth, 
His Father is of heaven. Hence the title, the Son of God. Now Mary's response to this overwhelming news is certainly admirable. But the truth is that God doesn't command Mary to do anything. He doesn't call Mary to do anything. He simply tells her what he's going to do through her. Now, that being said, this pregnancy will come at great personal cost to Mary. How would she explain this to Joseph? And what if he doesn't believe her? We'll see that next week. What will the neighbors say? What will her family say? While everyone was so happy that Elizabeth got pregnant and Elizabeth's shame was taken away, they might have the opposite reaction to Mary. She might have more shame heaped upon her because of the questionable, hard-to-believe story that she's telling about how she got pregnant. But Mary responds in a way that displays the favor that displays the grace that God has bestowed upon her. Even with all the cost of this pregnancy, Mary responds with humility and faith. So we have two passages, two women, two visits from an angel, two miraculous conceptions, and two unique, called, and set apart by God baby boys. But it's all part of the same story. We see that clearly when the two expecting mothers meet, and before John is even born, he is already worshiping Jesus. We see it when Elizabeth calls the baby in her relative's womb, my Lord. John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord, but Jesus Christ is the Lord. As we said last week, it's the story of God intervening in our world. It's the story of God fulfilling his promises from of old. The promise to Eve that someone would come and crush Satan's head. The promise to David that he would have a son on his throne who would reign forever. The promise in Isaiah 7 that a virgin would have a child. It's the story of God intervening and caring for and saving his sinful people. In her famous Magnificat in Luke 1, 46 through 55, which Joshua read earlier in the service, Mary starts by saying that her soul magnifies the Lord. Her soul magnifies the Lord. That's what the Magnificat means. Mary worships God. She thanks God for blessing her and helping his servant Israel. But as we'll see in the weeks ahead, this baby isn't just good news for Mary. He's not just good news for Israel. The angels will announce Jesus's arrival as good news of great joy for all the people. It's not just Mary who is of humble estate and who would experience God's grace and favor. It's all who would believe in her son. But practically speaking, what do we learn from what we read today? Can we learn something from Mary's example of humility and faith? Sure. But I'm not convinced that should be our primary takeaway. Can we learn something about God's power? Absolutely. As we saw from the story of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
And that includes a virgin birth. Can we learn something about God's knack for fulfilling his promises in unexpected ways? Of course. No one would have ever expected the Messiah to be from Nazareth of all places. I mean, what good can come from there? And later, no one would have expected the Messiah to get crucified by the Romans. But that's exactly how Jesus obeys and fulfills his father's will. You could do much worse than those lessons after reading this story. However, I think there's a better lesson that we can learn this morning. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Origin stories are important because when we learn where someone came from in the past, we can better understand who they are now. Now, in the interest of theological and doctrinal soundness, I should stress that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is eternal. What that means is that, in a sense, the Son of God has no origin story because God has no beginning. He has always existed and always will exist. That's why John can say about Jesus, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God has always existed. He has no origin. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Even though Abraham was born long before Mary ever got pregnant. That's why Jude can say in verse 5 of his book that Jesus was there when the Israelites left Egypt. It's why Jesus can refer to himself as Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, in Revelation 22:13. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal, without beginning, without origin. However, in a mysterious and miraculous way that we can't even fully wrap our minds around, the man Jesus Christ does have an origin story. While the Son has always existed, he hasn't always been a man. The virgin birth is the story of God's Son putting on flesh, becoming a man, and coming into our world. And by reading Jesus' origin story from the past, we gain a better understanding of who he would be, what he would do, and who he still is today. So the biggest lesson from today's text doesn't come from Mary. It's not about an angel. It's not about Nazareth. The biggest lesson of the virgin birth is that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Jesus is unlike us in all the necessary ways to be the fullness of God in human flesh. He is holy without sin. And Jesus is like us in all the necessary ways to be our Savior, our Redeemer, fully man, to die in our place on the cross. Now, it's true that Jesus was not the Messiah in the way people of his day and age typically understood it. He was not a military, royal, 
prophet figure the way they expected, sent to put Israel back on top politically, materially, and spiritually. Though most in his day and age probably cared a lot more about the political and material parts than the spiritual part. The truth is that Jesus is better than what they all expected. Because he is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, sent to save all who would believe in him from the eternal curse of sin. And because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he is the one-time sufficient sacrifice for your sins on the cross, past, present, and future. Because he died for us, all who believe in him are justified, forgiven, and adopted into God's family. That's the reason for wonder, awe, and joy that Christians have. And not just at Christmas, but every moment of every day. Again, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. But the virgin birth is the beginning of the story of how he became the Savior and Lord who we love and we know and we worship as Jesus. Now that may sound like a lot of boring, high-minded, theological nuts and bolts to you. It certainly isn't ten steps to have a more peaceful holiday season or five ways to navigate family conflict this Christmas. Or three tips on how not to go into debt buying presents. Those things might be helpful. But you can get them from other places. From the church at Christmas, you need to hear what we've heard today. That the eternal second person of the Trinity has come into our world. He has put on flesh, was born of a virgin, and is fully God and fully man. When he grew up, he died on a cross for our sins rose from the grave three days later, and ascended to the right hand of God, where he sits at this very moment interceding for us, and one day he will return. He is Savior, he is Lord, he is Son of David, and he is Son of God. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And all who believe in him, no matter how humble our estate, are favored ones of God. All who believe in him shall be called blessed. And knowing all of this, may we worship. May our souls magnify the Lord as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you that your son came. Thank you that you reached down You got your hands dirty. You got involved. You reached down for sinners like us. Father, we are just in awe of the fact that somehow, some way, in a manner that our minds cannot fully comprehend, you in all your glory and in all your fullness made yourself manifest to us, with us, among us, for us. In the person of Jesus. And so, Father, we just thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. We thank you that you fulfill your promises of the Old Testament, and really you fulfill your promises in even better ways than anybody expected. Father, thank you that those of us in this room who are of humble estate in the big scheme of things, 
We can be called blessed. We can be called favored. We can experience your grace because your son has come. And so, Father, may we worship you. May we love you. May we praise you. May our souls magnify you as we leave this place and throughout the rest of this Christmas season, throughout the rest of our lives, until your son once again comes. We love you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.